Hi, I'm Matt Householder, former programmer at Gottlieb and co-creator of the CoinOp Krull, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May, and I'm here, as ever, with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. I'm the author of Missile Commander, Mr. Tony Temple. Hello. If this is your first time listening to us, then you should know that the Ted Dabney Experience is part oral history, part fireside chat. A podcast project that allows Paul, Tony, and myself an opportunity to speak at length with not only the leading lights, but also the supporting cast from the so-called golden age of video arcade gaming. For this episode, we speak with Matt Householder from Gottlieb's underrated arcade adaptation of Peter Yates' ill-fated sci-fi fantasy film, Krull, via Atari's consumer division, to the wonderful summer, winter, California, and world games for epics. Matt Householder's video games career is storied and fascinating. We chat with Matt about life at Gottlieb, the legendary Tim Skelly, the unreleased ColecoVision version of Irem's Moon Patrol, and much, much more, including a rather interesting and exclusive Krull deep cut. As always, thank you for listening. We really do appreciate it. Despite our steadily growing subscriber base, we remain a self-funded, ad-free podcast. If you're feeling so inclined, then you can buy us a virtual beer or coffee at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Um, let's, start with the, um, let's start with the pre-1980s Matt Householder elevator pitch. Why don't you tell us exactly... What got you interested in computers and I think computer engineering in the first place? And, you know, was there a light bulb moment when everything just clicked and you thought, this is what I want to do with my life? Well, yeah, there's a lot of pre-1980 Matt Householder, but uh, yeah, the, the relevant part. <laughs> On percentage terms, yeah. Well, you know, I uh, got interested in computers when I was going to college at Kent State University in Ohio. I was uh, kind of a flailing around trying to find out what I wanted to do. I majored in a number of science-y type things like chemistry and math. But ultimately, I, uh, I, I took uh, some physics classes and ended up in a physics class for graduate students that uh, was to instruct them how to, how to build laboratory instrumentation of, out of analog computing devices. Okay. But uh, and we did a little bit of that. We had some analog op amps. It's basically op amps. How to use op amps, operational amplifiers to do, you know, addition, multiplication, division, blah, blah, blah. So, but luckily the TA in that class, the teaching assistant in the lab, uh, had built several of the new MITS Altair 8800 microcomputers that summer. This would have been 1976. And uh, so he had added digital computers. 
to the class. So there I learned, among other things, you know, how to toggle in a, uh, a loader into the, into the computer and then uh, load a paper tape with uh, Microsoft Basic on it, and then how to run or how to write and run programs that used uh, a teletype as an I.O. device. <laughs> okay. And um, so I first, so I, uh, in a final, for a final project in that class, I decided to uh, program a version of the Mastermind, which is a simple two-player code solving game yeah, sure. with a computer opponent. And that, that was uh, my contribution was the computer opponent AI. So um, just take me back and talk to me a little about the, op was it op was it operational amps, did you say? Op, op amps for short, operational amplifiers. They're kind of an idealized uh, near mathematical concept of like the perfect amplifier that has, you know, infinite uh, slew rate and infinite gain. Right. And, uh, you know, and then you can control it as a kind of a, through feedback to through to do negative feedback to uh, to get the proper uh, amplification that you want or to do integration or, or you could uh, put in different kinds of feedback using a capacitor to do integration or differentiation right okay and uh, you know so you could set a couple of op amps to do x x double dot uh, equals x you know is it and then solve and see what it solved for it and that gives you the um, it gives you sign, gives you a sine wave uh, or right. cosine. Okay. I can't remember now. <laughs> One of the two. Okay. Gee, I forgot almost all my engineering math. That's <laughs> okay. You still know it like infinitely more than I do. Um, and 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 just and zip forward to that rudimentary AI for Mastermind. What was what was it like programming that back in the seventies? Well, you know, I, my wife and I used to play Mastermind a lot when we went to to do our laundry. We and. <laughs> I was a fan of Mastermind from a kid. I had a Mastermind kit, probably the same one that I got when I, you know, for Christmas. But you know, Mastermind, you set up a code and then you write, and then and then what you do is you, as a solver, put through a series of experimental tests on the code, and then the other person has to reply with give you some kind of feedback about your attempt at solving the code. Yeah, sure. And you get you gather feedback, and then you make further guesses based upon the feedback that you get, and you kind of iterate down on a solution. Yeah. And I wrote the algorithm that used the strategy to iterate down on a solution given the feedback from the from the player. And uh, anyway, it was uh, I used the method that I had developed when I played. I forget the details on it, but it was just like, well, first you want to find out how many of one color there are, and then you want to find out. You know, have you have you Matt? Have you ever played the pinball machine Spectrum? By any chance? Spectrum. No, I don't recall that. I ask because, and unless I've got this wrong, I've never actually seen one in person, but I've coveted one uh, purely because I've been watching it on, on, on various YouTube videos. But it's a very unique pinball table. Looks beautiful, sounds beautiful, but I think it's essentially a pinball version of Mastermind, which, oh. if, if, you, if you can imagine, is probably adds an extra layer of complication to proceedings. I would say, yeah, you've got to be really good at shooting as well as thinking. Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. Um, so, 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 okay. So gaming. So, you know, Matt, were you a fan of the earliest coin-op video games? And, you know, before you, before you elaborate on that, you know, whether or not you were or weren't, where did you personally find these games? Was it, was it the mythical, perhaps somewhat revisionist American arcade or, or were they, you know, were they in the kind of everyday environments that rewarded that kind of interstitial play, like, you know, when your buddy's filling up the car or... Well, you know, I remember playing pinball machines Yeah. Um, when I was a kid at, at mostly at special arcades, at amusement parks, or uh, <clears throat> or the occasional bowling alley. There might be a few pinball machines there. What about, what about, what about video games, Matt? Did well, you, video games. You... Yeah, I didn't really run into video games until 
I play until I saw Pong in a laundromat. I believe. Okay. Again, this is with my wife and I. You're playing Mastermind, playing, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and playing. You know, it's like, oh, there's this game over here, Pong, and I put a quarter in it and and uh, play the game, and I really wasn't impressed. Huh. Right. Okay. <laughs> I really preferred spending my quarters to get drier clothing. <laughs> You're in the brain. honestly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I guess uh, not a not a fan of Pong, but. Uh, that's what. That's why we took Mastermind along. It's like, well, Mastermind is free and more fun. <laughs> screw this. Screw this newfangled video game crap. I'm just going to stick with my board <laughs> game. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, it was a poorly implemented game, in my opinion. I mean, thinking back about it, it was. Yeah, I don't know. So you, do, you safe to say you weren't a huge Atari fan back not, in the day? Then, not Matt. because of Pong. Sure. No, I mean, in spite of Pong, maybe is the best way to put it. But so what? Well, what, what changed your mind, Matt, was, you know, was there a game that, you know, was the one that finally reeled you in? Well, that's easy for me to come up with. It was Space Invaders. Aha, uh-huh. <clears throat> okay. And that's that was a real audiovisual experience with drama and uh, proper gameplay tuning and, you know, just kind of the right fantasy, too. Yeah, sure. Um, so I remember, well, this was years later, probably in 1978, when I was going to engineering school at the University of Michigan. Ultimately, I quit Kent and kind of failed to find something there that I could graduate with. You know, the, uh, the the physics computer lab stuff that I did. I took two classes there, one in basic and one in uh, the, this op amp class where I ran into microcomputers. So I quit, you know, Kent and then event, and then became an air conditioning repairman. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, took me, that took me sideways. I wasn't expecting that. Go on. Well, I... You know, I'm from a working class background and uh, I've been an electronics hobbyist since I was a kid, fixing televisions when I was 10, fixing my parents' television by testing the vacuum tubes and pedaling down to the drugstore. So you were the one kid who took things apart but actually could fix them? I could fix them. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. And well, I lived next door to a TV repairman, and uh, he used to come over and fix the TV for my parents. And uh, I would stand behind him and watch him while he did this. And, you know, vacuum tube televisions died. The vacuum tubes were like light bulbs. They burn out, go bad. So, you know, I said, well, hey, mom, dad, I next time the TV died and went out, whatever. I said, I can fix it. And coming back and twiddling all the controls in the back, which is kind of an art, you know. How many how many hands have you got, Matt? <laughs> and when did well, you lose one? <laughs> I have... Very high skin resistance, so that <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> kind of yeah. Anyway, uh, but you know, so that's my history. You know, I'm in like I've been in electronics, so then and I know like electrical stuff and yeah. And yeah. Uh, anyway, so I worked as an air. Con- anyway, and I I worked on and off, you know, making money to go back to school. Mm, okay. And then while I took this break, uh, I I bought myself a computer kit for a Poly eighty eight by. Uh, Polymorphic Systems, a, an S100 bus computer. It was in the kit form made by a company in California. And I, I bought that and assembled it. And uh, I still have it and it still works. Excellent. And uh, learned, I taught myself digital electronics on that basically. And then uh, also taught myself assembly language programming on the 8080, which is the processor that it used. And, uh, and then uh, I was working on an air conditioner one day on the top of my high school. And uh, uh, reached down to work on something, some high voltage motor thing. <laughs> Touched the contactor somehow, got 480 volts and went flying backward and nearly fell over the edge of the roof. 
three stories of the concrete. And I looked down and said, thought to myself, time to go back to college. You were, so you were doing, um, were you doing a master's in computer science? Is that right? Or was it computer oh, engineering? Ultimately, well, I got a degree in, I had a bachelor's in computer engineering from the University of Michigan. Right, right. And is and that then, where you, where you, um, that's where I ran into, that's where I ran into, uh, you know, actual arcades full of proper games, point out right. video games. Well, yeah, Paul and I were chatting about this earlier on and you apparently you took a computer graphics class which which was a pivotal moment for you because you met a certain vp of engineering oh yeah which was a turning point right yes if, that if I'm was not yeah yeah i mean in my my own memory of what i was doing you know i was at michigan university of michigan graduated there my wife and i she'd already finished her library science degree and we i knew i wanted to uh move to chicago so we mm -hmm. i got a job there with Bell Laboratories, yeah. yeah, they were hiring and sending people to ma to to get master's degrees, and they sent me to Northwestern University, which is just north of Chicago. So I went there for a year, and that's where I got a master's in computer science. Ah, right, okay. And right. then, yeah, yeah, my final semester there. I mean, I I knew I wanted to get into video games and coin up video games in particular. I mean, and you said when you were at university, you, that's when you did encounter. Lots more arcade games. Yeah, yeah. At, at University of Michigan, I that's where I saw arcades and played Space Invaders and became, you know, realized, hey, this is something I could do and really would like to do is design video games. And then I thought, well, I'll move to Chicago ultimately because there's a lot of video games being designed there. And that's where I'll just, I'll happen into it somehow, I suppose. Yeah. Just yeah. thought, well, put yourself in the in the way of it and then maybe it'll hit you. So I like that. <laughs> so that's what I did. But, uh, you know, I could have taken a more active role, I suppose, in hindsight and actually applied to some of these places. Instead, I just took the job with Bell Labs and, you know, ended up in a class, taking a graphics class, which was kind of a brand new thing at the time, computer graphics. Right. We're talking 1981, I guess. Yeah, 80, 81. And uh, I, I ran into a VP of product development for a, a video game company called GDI. They were a division of Seaberg. Game, gaming Devices Incorporated, right? Yeah, Gaming Devices Incorporated, meaning slot machines. Yeah. <laughs> That's a gaming device in that sort of uh, language. Anyway, GDI, Division of Seaberg, which is a jukebox maker. Sure, yeah. They, they were developing a 68,000-based hardware for a video poker machine, which was completely ahead of its time in terms of what was possible in terms of getting the gambling industry here in the U.S., the Nevada Gaming Commission in particular, to accept. So that was kind of tilting at windmills, maybe, but uh, I was, yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask you about, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, and also at GDI, I believe, I think GDI had licensed a couple of video games from Irem, yeah, if that's right. Yeah, they licensed a couple of games. Yeah, so I, I joined GDI um, and met Chris Krubel there, who ended up joining me later, or going with me to Gottlieb later. But right, right. Uh, we, you know, we worked together uh, on, on a number of, on trying to get this hardware rolling. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, yeah. GDI licensed some games from other manufacturers. One of them was Irem, who later did Moon Patrol and R-Type, yes. I believe, and some other yeah, they did. big, yeah. big yeah. names. Um, but that was International Rental Electronic Machines, Irem. Excellent. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, they... They produced the game Red Alert yeah. that uh, GDI licensed for the U.S. And then another one called Ollie Boo Ollie Chew. Ollie Boo Chew, yes. Which indeed. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Paul Paul named it before before we did this. He, he, I'm sure he's going to talk I, to you about it. Go on, Paul. I, I like it. I, I, oh, like, I like the madness of crushing all those mice. Yeah. Um, 
What did you make of it when you first saw that? Well, Red Alert um, was kind of silly, we thought. I mean, I had all this speech in it, but Ollie Boo Chu. Bless you. Bless you. was like, well, this is, yeah. <laughs> Labriot. <laughs> that that game is kind, kind of like, uh, like a Pac-Man, but a bit more interesting. It seemed like it didn't have a pattern in it. Yeah. I was not that. I didn't like Pac-Man too much. Another another negative about me, I guess. It's okay. <laughs> didn't like Pong, didn't like Pac-Man. It's not de rigueur. You, know, you don't have to like Pac-Man to be into arcade games. It's fine. Yeah. Although you have just chosen two of the key. <laughs> At least yeah. you like Space Invaders. That's fine. Oh, yeah. Space Invaders. Wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, um, real inspiration to me and a lot of people, I think. Um, yeah. um, but uh, with Ali Buchu, um, actually, it turns out, yeah, now they think about it, it's the first coin-out video game that I ever had any input on as a, as a creative or or finisher yes they, they sent me to japan along with another guy sabode Taprani. he was our artwork guy to do a tune-up on this and get it properly playing for the u.s market where it was challenged the right challenge level and it would we thought would be most you know do the best in terms of a coin take yeah yeah, yeah. and uh we went there and made it a lot more difficult and more exciting than- <laughs> how do you find how do you find the um how do you find that trip then? How, how long are you over there in uh, Japan? And where were you? Gee, exactly? we were, yeah, we were there. This was just before Christmas in 81. And we were there for three weeks. I think we spent two weeks in and around Tokyo. Yeah. And working with the developers and doing some socializing and drinking and shopping and eating. And then uh, then we took a little side trip down to, oh, took the Shinkansen, the bullet train, down to yeah, yeah. to Osaka yeah. And uh, visited Kobe, which is one of these little kind of like a World's Fair site that had already finished, I believe. Right. So let me let me just walk you back a little bit. And yeah. you were talking about video poker that GDI seemed to be heavily invested in. And you, you obviously you mentioned the Nevada Gaming Commission. And I believe they weren't exactly forthcoming with their approval for such newfangled devices. Yeah, uh, it, right. I mean... About a year after I had started there, I mean, I I, w- I really wanted to make a game. And so did Chris. Uh, I mean, but it, after about a year at, at GDI, it became apparent to me and him as well that the coin-up game market was beginning to weaken. It seemed to me that players were getting bored with kind of the same old stuff. And the sales of new machines, we would see the sales figures uh, and they were they were going down. And uh, GDI wasn't really making any progress that I could see of in, build, in finishing this hardware was a little bit odd i mean the hardware sure and uh or with the nevada gaming commission of course which is what really mattered yeah they weren't yeah. they were they were getting nowhere with them in approval for any kind of video poker machine i mean i'm sure that the question i, I don't have any direct knowledge but i'm sure the questions were like well and what's video poker <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> and how would this be a machine yeah and how yeah <laughs> and how would we verify that it's you know that it conforms to the to the probability standards that we require for slot machines right. and payoff and you know all that kind of stuff <laughs> or, or not or not yeah that <laughs> yeah, the exactly. payoff is adjustable yeah. and that well whatever well I mean Chris Krubel was a math genius mm. and that was I think his domain was to focus more on the the randomness and the and you know having a rigorous mathematical foundation for the control of the randomness and such so that, so the video poker would pass but I mean I don't you know in hindsight I don't think that nevada was ready for that and i'm not Fine. sure even when they became ready but i i think it was like 10 years ago maybe maybe 20 but yeah, yeah well yeah i mean in some ways ahead of your time then so so uh, 
I guess GDI was taking something of a beating around this time. And I believe that you and Chris were, I think, through, you were basically scouting around for something different, weren't you? I mean, maybe you saw the writing on the wall, uh, but th- and that led you to Gottlieb, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, I don't remember how we got in touch with Gottlieb. Maybe we just saw an ad in the newspaper or something. Yeah. Or maybe we had a headhunter. I don't recall. It might have been a headhunter. Yeah, it's probably a headhunter. Um, but anyway, somehow I got this lead that that Gottlieb, you know, had its own video game hardware done and working. Yes. And several games in development. And uh, and you knew about this before you went for the interview, yeah, right? So you were, well, you were get, okay. We, fine. yeah, that's, yeah. It must have been the headhunter told me, or maybe I learned this from Ron Waxman over the phone before we went in or by some form uh, of communi- electronic ask- communication, but I don't recall. <laughs> I mean, email hardly even existed at this point. No, sure. I was going to ask you actually who, so I'm assuming you interviewed with, with I mean, depending on who you ask, either the avuncular or the intimidating Ron Waxman uh, and, or potentially Howie Rubin as well. Did you, did, uh, were these the first Do I contact? remember Howie from, the, I, I remember Ron. He's a singular guy. Yes. Um, and yeah, he interviewed us directly. He, in fact, he brought me and Chris in together to co-interview. Right. So okay. we did get individual interviews. We were interviewed as a pair because we were kind of looking Excellent. together. How do you find him? Um, Ron was both intimidating and avuncular. Like Excellent. You said. Okay. <laughs> but uh, very smart guy. Yeah. And uh, very focused on getting things done. Yeah. And he basically... You know, he, he quizzed us at length and he basically, I think he he decided on the spot to hire us, but and I'm, I don't recall how long it took, but the deal was we had to work on Krull. We had to do Krull. Got it right. So he kind of reeled you in on that basis. Um, and before we talk about Krull, because I'm going to hand you over to Paul to talk very specifically about that about that game. Um, when you got to Gottlieb, um, so presumably Khan Yabamoto, Warren, Warren Davis, David Thiel, you know, did you, you, you were straight in there presumably to meet these guys who are already on the roster uh, um, I, by that point? I don't recall who we were allowed to meet oh. prior to showing up for work, honestly. Oh. And I say allowed, I mean, Ron, I think was pretty um, controlling of, of his, of his staff and his his procedure and it just he didn't want people recruiting other people away i think he didn't well i don't think we met these guys i don't believe we did i believe we just met ron and maybe uh howie like you said and perhaps some of the some of the other uh, what he stuck you in a you, you you physically literally stuck in a room away from everybody a different mm, site or? no we were we were at we started um at at the location i forget the name some of the details of this are kind of fuzzy you sure. started at a location where they, uh, there was like a manufacturing plant. And then uh, shortly thereafter, like maybe a couple of months, we moved to the main place. Right, I That's see. That's whatever it was. I, I forget. what There was one called Bensonville and there was okay. one called Lake Street maybe, or I forget. What about, what about um, Matt, what about Tim Skelly? Did you meet oh. Tim Skelly in those days? Yeah, eventually met Tim. He, he did not work on site and... Uh, kind of I would see him kind of come through the office you know everyone was like oh it's Tim Skelly he's here well I knew him by reputation because some of his games were my favorite coin-ops at the time rip off yeah and uh armor attack yeah not so much armor attack but um um tail gunner right okay sure sure tail gunner and rip off were two of my yeah. favorite 
coin ops. In fact, I generally didn't like vector games, except for asteroids maybe, but um, those were excellent. So I knew of Tim and his ability to make make a fun game, fun action game. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Quite the quite the um, the debonair gentleman, we believe as well. Oh yeah, he was uh, cool guy. Yeah. He was very um, yeah very interesting and funny. Super funny, but I didn't become really friends with Tim until much later after after Gottlieb. But uh, right. Tim was kind of a you know he was as isolated by Ron and the other people. I, I don't know if they thought he was a bad influence on us or. That's really really interesting, actually. I mean, obviously we've spoken to Warren and David and and, and Jeff um, from Gottlieb, and I don't really think they elaborated or or, or mentioned. Well, that kind of thing, you know, that kind of compartmentalization or, or divide he, and conquer. It's because he blotted his copybook by having pictures taken, yes, draped across the reactor. On that was a problem. Can you remember that? I remember getting, yeah, walking, you know, going to get the Chicago Reader, so we free weekly from that period, and like, oh look, here's Tim Skelly. <laughs> Right. Here's a photograph of him on top of the reactor games. And I thought, wow, that's cool. Yeah. But apparently it was not cool. <laughs> oh. It was not cool. Not, right. not cool right. with Ron. But he was banned then from the factory. Yeah. yeah. Is that what happened with yeah. Tim? I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. Okay. Not cool with the management. Maybe Ron was okay with it. Maybe I doubt he was actually. But, but they still kept, it was still good enough to keep on, clearly, you know what I mean? But, so they, I think they just didn't let Tim come around the office very often. Only like... It's even more rock and roll. When he was escorted to, to the office. <laughs> he had an entourage, keeping yeah. it separate from you poor programmer, so you, so you weren't corrupted. Yeah, escort like a security escort, you know. It was like, you don't be like him, guys. <laughs> right, okay. So so just, just, to tie, just to tie this section of the just to tie my section up so so Gottlieb brought you in or uh, and Ron Waxman brought you in um on the proviso that you do you do cruel you come in you're working on cruel yes you know I, I mean this is just my personal experience it's not to say that this is the way it was but it's just kind of like how I feel or how I felt at the time and have memories of feeling about it but you know we we became more friendly with people or after we moved to the other to the other building right and we were kind of all together i think this other building we were kind of scattered around among different makeshift workspaces i think warren had kind of an office maybe and uh separate i, I don't even really know i can some of these memories of that very early days are harder Hard to resurrect. Lost to time. Lost sure. to time, but uh, like late tears in rain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but um, you know, Tim. Tim was definitely somebody I respected. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I think that maybe they maybe the Gottlieb management didn't want uh, us to quit and become contractors like Tim. Maybe that was the fear. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I had never done a game, so I didn't feel like I had any reason to quit. I firstly need to get a game done. So Every, Everybody we speak to kind of adds a new brush stroke to the picture. And that, that seems to be the case that management across lots of coin-op uh, companies were, were, were big on sort of the anonymity, weren't they? You know, they, they didn't want their uh, creatives to to be poached i believe they that's true in general but uh yeah, yeah i mean we had yet to prove ourselves so you know yeah. ron wanted me and chris to do something and you know and we did well um, let's let me let me hand you over to paul then in that case um because on a distant planet a great kingdom was <laughs> ravaged by beings that came from the future hello matt uh had you heard of this movie, so obviously it wasn't out yet. But had you heard of Krull, or was the first time you heard it when 
Ron Waxman said, hey, you're working on it. Well, that's that, that was the first time I'd heard of it. And he didn't tell us too much about it other than the name, I believe, and the fact that, you know, it was going to be coming out in in the next year, you know, which would have been 83, and uh, that we needed to get to work and get it done before the movie was out. Fair enough. Um, you said that the film was in production at the time. So, yeah. So um, over the, the, particularly those early days when you'd just been told that you'd got this uh, this film license, what did you actually get given? A script? Did you did you get to go on set? What were you actually oh, given? Yeah, I was given a copy, a photocopy of a, a script at some point in its development. I don't even really know. I still have a, I still have it. I took it with me when I left. So <laughs> I have a copy of this version of the Krull script, and I read that over and uh, and then produced some documents about how we would convert that. Chris and me, how we would take that and make a game out of it. What was your first impression of the of the script? I mean, did it did it sound like the kind of film that would lend itself to a to a game? Well, you know, it had a, a story. That, that helps. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, that helped and hindered at the same time because, you know, story meant that it had some progression and uh, a series of activities you need to perform to carry out the loosely follow the plot, you know. But then it also had to never end, which is the game aspect, yes. the coin-op game. So that is essentially a contradiction. You said that you were really keen to actually design a game in your previous role. Um, you know, so here now you are able to design a game but i just wondered how you felt with the fact that it was a film license was was that exciting and inspiring or slightly daunting and possibly frustrating that you wouldn't have a completely free reign you would have to follow some kind of guidelines well i think it was actually a help to a first time game designer mm -hmm. to give you know have some structure imposed from without it becomes a kind of a puzzle then where you have to solve it I mean, that's how I look, like to look at it. It's like, well, here's your here's your goal. How do you get there? Rather than saying, well, what's my goal? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, you definitely, yeah, you knew what the uh, the finale of the film would be. Yeah, but of course, you had to pick certain scenes in the game uh, in the film to then adapt to a game. I just wondered how you went about that. Were you um, I remember, and I still have some of my documentation on this. I was just looking through it like last week to kind of review, refresh. And I looked over my documentation on this and I basically read the script and then I jotted down a number of possible locations or scenarios from the movie that I thought could make gameplay activity and, and put them in a in the sequence that they occur in the movie, in the script anyway. And then uh, went through a number of them and just said, and just iterating down and eliminating until I said, well, gee, how many of these can we actually do the two of us in some mm -hmm. six month time frame, given that we've never pro we've never done a game before either of us? Although you know we were skilled and talented enough and had plenty of energy and time, so you know we we just you know we whittle it down to basically five five sub games, and so that was that was a completely arbitrary number then you could have you weren't getting any direction from management saying we need this many scenes or this many screens no no we were we were given pretty much free reign and mostly it was me taking the reins mm. uh chris and i worked together on a daily basis and collaborated and because we had to agree to do this we had to divide up the work mm -hmm. and uh now most games are made by well huge teams uh these days but i mean back then i imagine being co- programmers on a game might actually present some kind of challenges of its own. Tell us how the process worked. 
Well, it was challenging in that there was no uh, um, shared development resources for two programmers to work together. Um, so we we had an IBM PC each, which was nice, a, mm -hmm. a hard with a, like a five meg hard drive or something. <laughs> right. Whoa. You were looking. Wow. That was quite big. Yeah. And a couple of uh, five and a quarter inch floppy drives on it, and uh, it had very good uh, development hardware. It had a 8088 hardware emulator. Right. We could plug that right on in place of an 8088 chip onto the Gottlieb board. Right. So our hardware tools were good, but software tool wise, yeah, we were we basically had an assembler and a text editor, and uh, we would work away on our project for the few days, and then every few days or so we would. Um, sit together and uh, copy stuff. What I did was I used my machine as the master and okay. Chris would bring his stuff on floppy, put it in. We'd work together like pair programming, like modern day pro pair programming. Okay. But we'd sit mm -hmm. side by side and work on adding his code to my code and then making everything assemble and link and run. And, well, you, uh, you know, we just did that, iterated on that, you know, day after day, week after week for several months. Yeah. Did you did you sh not share an office then? It's not as if he was in one desk looking over at you. Were you in separate places? Well, we had little, we had cubes. So we were, I okay. think we were in cubes next to one another. So I could stand up and look over the cube wall and say, hey, Chris, or I could, or I could just say, hey, Chris. <laughs> so you, you didn't, you didn't need to email each other. No, we didn't. Shout. No, there was no email. really. <laughs> right, okay. We um, called it sneaker net. Just very um, nice. Um, can you just ask what, you know, this is the early days of, um, you know, coin op and game development. Now people are used to collaborating with a huge amount of people. But I mean, did you did you clash at all? I mean, was there a time well, when Chris uh, Chris and I had di different personalities? Uh, but you know, we're both very independent minded and kind of sarcastic, sardonic, whatever. You know, we uh, and uh, you know we took one another. Well, we like to joke together about certain things, like. Um, when we play video games, coin up games together, we would, you know, he he had a certain, we had some funny catchphrases that he, well, ones that he mostly he liked to use, like uh, uh, if you did something stupid or good in a video game while Chris is watching, he might say, nice going Hopeye. What? Hopeye. Okay. Yeah. And it was a joke about a game that from Japan that Chris and I saw at GDI and it was being presented by a team from Japan and, and uh, they showed it to us and there was a reward scene in the game when you'd done something well and it would pop up this word, these words that says, nice going Hopeye. Okay. As opposed to Popeye. And Chris said, you this, mean yeah, Popeye, Jenglish right? is this yeah. essentially. Well, yeah. well, yeah. And Chris pointed out, no, you mean Popeye, right? And it's like, Oh no, Hopeye, Hopeye. Okay. Because right. well, because Popeye is a trademark that they didn't have the rights to, so they. But and the H and the P look similar in in katakana, which is the Japanese romaji representation. You just put a little circle to make an H into a P. Anyway, whatever. Whatever. Chris was just kind of a cryptic comedian like that. I am. Um, I want to ask specifically about some game elements of Crawl Matt. Um, tell us about your your inspiration for the gameplay because I, I mean I noticed that it has got two joysticks. So uh, was Robotron a big influence? Oh, absolutely! Robotron was my favorite coin-op game at the time, and it still is. I I have one in in my garage. I haven't played in a long time, but yeah. So Robotron, two eight-way joysticks, 
and uh, the other inspiration was Tron, oh. which was the the other game, the previous game that had been based on a movie. So I used that as a model to some degree. Okay. So I knew that you know the best way is to pick out four elements of the game, four or five in my case. I mm -hmm. picked five for Crow, and and then uh, you know I had to pick five elements that would work well with two eight-way joysticks, basically. Yeah. And. You've got some clever, I mean, bearing in mind it is, you know, 1983. It's, it's the fairly early days, uh, especially of, you know, it was only sort of 1980 when we started having games that had multiple screens. So you cram quite a lot of interesting ideas there. Let me ask you about the, on the first screen. It has all these, a lot of rocks kind of tumbling down a hillside. Yeah. Kind of, kind of boulder hell. Uh, yes. As opposed to bullet hell, yes. um, and it's sort of three D in that you can you can sort of run in front of them, then behind them. Yeah, how did you go about creating that rather clever illusion? Well, yeah, it was an illusion we we created. Um, see, the 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 hardware could display up to sixty three sprites, I believe, mm -hmm. and Colin was one, um, and there were the five glaive arms to pick up. Those were five others, and then there were some other little things like little bushes and whatever I had scattered around that were also sprites. So we had a lot of rocks we could roll down, like maybe 20 or 30, I forget. But we ramp them up slowly, start out with a few and add more and more and make them go faster and faster and make them aim at you more and more too so that they would basically, at a certain point after time, they would line right up on you and I thought, knock you down. That's amazing you told me that because I just thought that like, oh, that's mean. You know, they just seem to be coming my way. You're telling me you actually programmed it so the rocks would start aiming for your character Colwyn. Yes, there there was a probability where that it would roll toward you. If it was going to roll, it would roll toward you. And you would just keep upping the probability until the probability was one, you know. No. Paul, so, Paul was taking it personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought I'm really unlucky. They were, they were going right for me. And, yeah. Well, but the thing is, the, yeah. you kind of want them to go for you because there's this crazy mechanic where you can sort of get more points by... yeah narrowly avoiding them yes yeah well that was kind of an accident well that was an accident okay it wasn't the intention there's an interesting story this is something that another one of chris's things that he named uh he had a, he called it macho points okay. <laughs> nice very 80 you know so we'd, we created this first game element this first sub game the, the boulder game and uh basically when as i was playing it i realized that um you could die and not score any points. <laughs> right. You could yeah. lose all your lives and have zero. It's like, oh, no, that's terrible. That's a terrible user experience. No one's going to play the game if that happens to them. They're never dropping another quarter in after that. So I said, well, what can I do to make sure they get some points? Well, the rocks hits them. That's how they die. So um, I'll give them some points for overlapping with the rock. <laughs> I think that's really clever. I mean, it's something that you see in games after that. Some shoot-em-ups, like Saivaria, they kind of reward you for getting near. Getting yourself in the racing danger. games. Yes. Yeah, like racing games like Burnout, if you, you get points for a near miss. I think you've invented a game mechanic there back in 1983. You're right. I think you're right. Um, it's very likely that Chris and I invented Macho Point, so that was his name for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as we begin to refine it, we, you know, I said to Dave Thiel later, um, you know, I've got this. Well, the, the reason Macho Points work is because of the 3D sorting that I did on the on the sprites. So I could always keep them sorted in Y vertically. So if you were in front of something, that meant you were farther down the hill. And it contributed to that two and a half D kind of, you know, fake 3D perspective. Clever. And, uh, you know, 
software system that I built to allow this to happen uh, in, in, you know, by keeping a linked list of uh, objects and sort them now, vertically. You've, you've talked a lot about the work that you, and, uh, that you and Chris did on Crawl, but of course you weren't the only people to contribute to that game. Let's, oh, no. Uh, ask, first of all, let's ask about uh, your work with artist Jeff Lee. Um, I get, did you provide him some sketches and talk through what you wanted or did you just let him get on with it? Well, Jeff, um, um, you know, I produced a list of uh, characters and a number of directions that I needed to have them rendered in. And, uh, you know, other things that were not characters like neon spears and trees and, and a list of background elements that I needed. And uh, he basically produced all those sprites by hand, as well as the background elements. And uh, he was pretty creative on his own and didn't need a lot of guidance. I mean, other than just giving him the technical requirements of like, it has to be this big. And, and he, you know, he did all the, you know, he, he decided what they were going to look like and the color schemes that was all going to have. I did contribute to some of that mm -hmm. with, the, with the spec that I wrote, but, you know, basically he built it after reading that spec and then talking with me. You yeah. mentioned that you'd had a script, so you knew about the scenes. But, I mean, were you given no visual resources at all? There wasn't, um, a, you know, a picture of what Colwyn would look like or the beast, or did you ever get to go on set? I, I never got to go on set or talk to anyone at Columbia Pictures about it. Um, I believe that um, Jeff and Dave Thiel got material to help them with their visual and audio production uh, but our game design production was just well we just made it up and picked things out of the script that we thought would work well as game elements yeah, yeah. I, I do want to ask you one thing about the uh, the visuals is that when you actually get to uh, the end of or get to level five the final level yeah. is that you get to meet the beast yeah i don't want to be rude but he's a tiny bit underwhelming he sort of lollops like a teenager and, and then he sort of lollops off like yeah. a sulking I don't, what do you were you slightly disappointed with that well i was but um you know we were under what i thought was a real deadline to just get this thing out the door and maybe we should have spent more time on the finale scene okay. but we didn't and we shipped it and before the movie released which was a good thing because the movie was kind of a huge flop so yeah being out Fair before enough. the movie was a big advantage <laughs> Clever. Um, just on the sound, you mentioned Dave Thiel, yeah. who we know because we've talked to him on the podcast before, took absolutely hours trying to get the sound right. He, he told us he took several days just trying to get the sound of Colwyn putting his foot in a swamp yeah. and pulling his foot out of a swamp. So I just wondered again, how did that work? Was was he? Would he walk over to your office and go, guys, listen to this? How would it work? No, I think he mostly labored in, you know, solitary confinement on a lot of these things. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, he knew what he was doing and it's like, oh, my God, this is horrible. I can't. Or, it wasn't like he needed to have us approve anything anyway, because, he, you know, he knew what he had good stuff or bad. And I didn't give him that much direction. And the one area I did was in this the reward music for the when you're when you're gathering macho points, you can't really look up and see. Mm -hmm. You kind of want to know that you're that you're doing it. And you want to hear the audio cue of like, yeah, I'm gathering macho points as I come running down the screen. You're not. It's just theme for macho points. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd buy that. Yeah, I mean, it lets you know like you're you're racking them up. However, it went. I forget, but you know, <laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the game came out. Well, first of all, you made your deadline. Well done. So I presume that made Ron and Howie Rubin, your managers, Ron Waxman and Howie Rubin, your managers, happy. Um, but you 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 pointed out there that of course when the film 
actually came out. Did you go and see it at the theatre? Uh, no, we did not. <laughs> and Really? After all that time working on the game, you didn't go and see the film? If Had they invited us, I'm sure I would have been very happy to go. <laughs> but it wasn't yeah. anything that came down from the corporate uh, process. You know, it was Columbia Pictures, which was owned by Coca-Cola yeah. at the time, uh, which, you know, Columbia owned uh, Gottlieb. So there was just no, it was kind of like we were uh, redheaded stepchildren, I suppose. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, yeah. So, but did so? But you did clearly know that the film, the film flopped at the at the box office. Did that essentially end any chance of your game Krull being a hit? Um, no, <laughs> I don't think that's what had any effect on it. I mean, Krull was uh, it had a headwind in that uh, the coin up game, the coin up market was already starting to slip dramatically, and they were having trouble selling coin up video games. Mm-hmm. Crawl, I think, shipped 3,000 units, mm-hmm. or, uh, which was probably okay. pretty good at the time. At the time, <laughs> uh, $2,000 yes. a piece, 3,000 units, $6 million. Like, okay, well, it you know, probably made Gottlieb a small profit. Hi, Matt. Um, Matt, I, I just wonder, um, you know, clearly programming a game is only one part of what uh, the consumer ultimately experiences. And I I just wondered if you had any say in the actual cabinet design and the artwork used on the cabinet? Um, no real input on that, but I think it was pretty well done. Mm-hmm. The only input we would have had was specifying that there were going to be two eight-way joysticks. So I remember ha- I, some of my notes mentioned that and, then the, you know, we had to figure out whether it was going to be purchased or they were going to build them up themselves internally. I think there was a little pushback on that early on, but ultimately it was kind of like, well, you know, just it's even, it's actually simpler. Two of the same thing and, you know, just negotiate a uh, a price because you're ordering twice as many. <laughs> Indeed. And did you have an opportunity to see rows and rows of crawl cabinets being built on the production line? I don't recall. Don't recall seeing them. I must have, but I mean, I like a two or 3,000 run probably do that in a in a month i'm not sure how long mm-hmm. their production run was or maybe they did several small runs i'm not sure how it was done basically at that point i was looking to leave and wasn't really too involved in gottlieb activities and okay i remember getting a crawl i, I got a set of the crawl boards which i still have and a set of uh, comedy roms that uh, chris brewer put together a replacement set of foreground sprites with some uh, differences that were poking fun at uh, at me or I, or whatever I, I'm not quite sure who, but just at poking fun at the whole game oh really yeah are, the, are these sorry sorry to interject Tony are these comedy roms as you call them Matt are they are they are, have you made these widely available or do they remain oh no I'm the only one that has a copy really yeah I think have the, you backed them up have well you, you... they're in the dark eproms down there <laughs> last time I looked at them which was probably 20 years ago they've still had something on them but we've uncovered something here boys yeah yeah Chris Brewer was programmer on Mach 3 mm-hmm. and he was kind of a, a general do everything kind of guy but anyway, he was also an artist he as i discovered he he did this set of roms called crawl k-r-a-w-l and it changed the slayers into businessmen carrying briefcases kind of like uh robotron and i think we should put you in touch with somebody yeah and the art army <laughs> somebody's going to be interested in these. the army of friends your army your army of friends was turned into boy scouts and princess lissa's turned into a coin art video game this is why we do this podcast sorry tony i'm gonna i'm gonna mute myself now. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, there's an arcade called Galloping Ghosts in Chicago, which you may have heard of, Matt. And um, yeah. Yeah. their their proposition is they, or oh, they certainly used to, I don't know if they still do, but they, they like to put a new arcade machine on the floor every week. And of course, with that pressure comes, you know, you have to find something new and interesting to you know, build and put out on the sure. um, on the arcade floor. Oh yeah, I suspect they would be very, very interested in your um, comedy roms and turning that into a working comedy crawl um, arcade cabinet. Well, yeah, yeah we yeah. we should put you. We should may, maybe put put you in touch there. Um, Matt, it's interesting. You 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 kind of mentioned there at the end of the sort of crawl process. You 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 were it sounds like you, you you're sort of losing heart at Gottlieb. Yeah. I, I just wondered. Um, I mean, I I just wonder if if you sort of learnt anything specific from your dual programming experience on uh, Crawl? Well, the dual programming, that um, what I learned was that two people could work on one game. Okay. And uh, Ron Waxman used to rib constantly, used to give me and Chris Krubel grief, saying, how is it that two? it takes two programmers to do one game? Because, you know, all of the other games were being done by one programmer at Gottlieb. And, uh, well, except for Protector, which needed Warren to help from time to time. And, but, you know, he was just, in other words, he wanted me and Chris to split apart and do two games instead of one. After Kroll was just at a certain point, he just wanted, I think he wanted Chris to be pulled off and just had, I don't know what he wanted. But what I told Ron was, <laughs> well, Chris does the bad guys and I do the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> And is that because Ron essentially was a numbers man as opposed to a creative man? Well, well, he was a creative man, I think, more than a numbers man, honestly. Um, but, um, well, he, he, he was a numbers man in the, also to the extent that he believed in random throws of the dice. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, that that yeah, that 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 observation sort of reminds me of our conversation with Warren Davis some some episodes back, where he described the sort of working environment at Gottlieb as very much a sort of voyage of discovery. So you know, mm-hmm. sit someone in front of a screen and a keyboard, and and you know, something's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I well, wonder if you if you share that view. Well, it worked out very well for for Qbert and and Mad Planets. I mean, those are two. Two examples. Of course. But there mm-hmm. were a number of other games that never got very far at Gottlieb, I think. So, you know, it's 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 a it's a win lose. But if you have a hit out of one of those wins, then like Cubert, there you go. Mm. I mean Mad Planets was a win, but it wasn't a huge hit. Yes. Good game, good gameplay, but also came out kind of late in the in the coin op uh, business cycle where it was going down. Like like Crawl. Yeah, I think it's very I, I think it's very much one of those games like Gravatar where we have a real sense of appreciation in the here and now, as opposed to you know back in 1983 when it was actually released. Yes. Anyway, I you know at the, the, so after I finished Crawl, you know I began it was kind of like, well, what am I going to work on now? What's next? And I, I I was thrown into this you know okay, come up with something you're going to do and and do it you know and and it was kind of like, well, you know what uh, is do I have a good idea? Well, so and I didn't. So I had some idea that I was working on and I forgotten much about it but i wasn't real eager to do it and the gottlieb hardware was kind of constraining didn't really lend itself to the nature that i wanted to pursue at that particular time like 3d anything forget it you could kind of trick some 3d effects like i'd already done in crawl with the mountain game the the glaive boulder game 
But um, so, what did you actually work? So, so straight after Kroll, what what was your next project? Well, while you were still at, at Gottlieb, at Gottlieb, well, I I worked on something. What did I call it? It was it was a game where you had a robot that would kind of come close to you from a distance, and you'd have to shoot things. Or, I can't remember what it was now, but it was just kind of like a technology experiment I was working on, and a gameplay experiment to see if I could make something fun out of it. I can't swear to it, but I think I, I might have been inspired by uh, Space Harrier. Was when was when did Space Harrier come out? Maybe that was later. I was kind of like mid eighties for sure. Eighty five, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I really liked Space Harrier. I, I didn't really like that many coin ups. Uh, after say what i call the golden age of the early 80s but space harrier is one i liked and um zybots and uh, and xenophobe mm-hmm. well anyway that in my time at gottlieb after crawl basically what i did was i buttoned up the crawl utilities into a kind of set of of uh, like an like a miniature game like an operating system or a game environment because we could do okay. five different sub games with it then i knew that Sam Russo, who was working on Three Stooges at the time, needed something that would do that. And I basically buttoned that up and handed it to him and said, hey, you can do Three Stooges with this. So, so to, to, a, to a layman idiot like me who can, who can barely use Outlook, um, programming sort of, I don't know what you would call them, but, but sort of back office background utilities, mm-hmm. which would ultimately be used, used by other people for their, for their sort of you know, um, creative endeavors, doesn't sound terribly exciting. But I assume it, it was an important piece of work, right? Oh, well, I think it was. I don't think Three Stooges would have shipped without it. Okay. But um, I've always been a very um, verbose documenter of what I'm doing in code with like headers and descriptions of what the inputs are and what what the outputs are and what registers get destroyed. <laughs> and but so, you know, in terms of the, the assembly language level and, uh, you know, and then inline comments that, I hope make sense so that someone can actually maintain it later and find find any bugs or make improvements. <laughs> yeah, I bet you've got a very very organized desktop on your computer, haven't well, you, Matt? I don't know. It's a kind of a chaos. If you don't have a little chaos, you're never creative. I'll say that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, and so at that point, Matt, would did you just make a decision that you know, hey, you know, there's this stuff is needed by the team or? Or yeah. were, you, were you specifically asked and sat down and, and told to, to come up with that? I don't believe I was told to do it. I pretty okay. much did it and be thinking like, well, you know, might, might as well leave something behind here because not, there's not going to, crawl isn't going to make, uh, they're not going to be doing crawl too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and and, so, and programming that kind of sort of functional utility, is there a distinct difference between programming that type of thing versus the creative process of, you know, something like Kroll? Um, no, these utilities were actually, it's basically nothing more than uh, code that I wrote for Kroll or that Chris and I wrote for Kroll. Okay. And, you know, just fully, maybe probably fully documented and kind of stripped, I stripped out all of the Kroll specific gameplay and just made it to utilities. And Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Three Stooges. Can, can you tell us any more about that game? I don't remember much of it. It was happening while I was there. I think it was just kind of getting started or it was having trouble getting started is what I remember. And mm-hmm. uh, what I recall was um, they were going to do three joysticks, three players on one cabinet, which seemed, seemed like a pretty smart idea. Three Stooges, three controllers. And, uh, you know, since uh, Columbia Pictures owned the rights to Three Stooges, that 
it was a natural kind of license again, right? Instead of being a movie, it's a TV, well, a set of set of, uh, of short comedy movies that were packaged later for television. That, that's where I first saw them. But, uh, and it seemed like a natural to me. And then, you know, um, it was basically a, a notion of a food fight game, you know, you're running around, throwing things. Mm-hmm. I remember that being one of the major stages in the game. Maybe I saw that later after after I'd left. I'm not even sure. It's interesting that those two games were both licenses, and I, I just wonder if that was a deliberate direction that Gottlieb thought they should go in to maybe, you know, shore up their games or, you know, potentially add something to sales volumes. I Yeah, I really don't know how Gottlieb operated at a management level, and it seems to me that Columbia Pictures strong-armed that. Them. Okay, but that I—that's just my after-the-fact speculation. I, I don't really know. Mm. But I mean, you know, in both cases, um, looking back at that time, one can argue that Cuba and Mad Planets, you know, had uh, had greater success in terms of hardware sales. Yes. Um, you know, clearly during that time, as you've already alluded to, the arcade industry was was going into something of a decline. I just wonder how how that industry declined looked from behind a desk at the Gottlieb offices. Well, you could you could tell that uh, you know the manufacturing line was not that busy. <laughs> okay. Because we right. we were in all in one building now. The manufacturing um, assembly line for pinball and video games was just kind of through a doorway. You'd open the door and you could look in there. And from our uh, from our offices of cubes of where the programmers were, you know, it was just generally less busy, less noisy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I mean, it must have been pretty stark, you know, as opposed to sort of reading a report in a in an industry magazine. I mean, I, I guess you guys were actually, you know, it it was physically manifesting itself in front of your eyes, right? It seemed like it was, and then um, at least to me, in my memory, and um, um, when Columbia Pictures or Coke made Gottlieb change their name to Milestar, I was horrified. <laughs> right. Yes. And that was the last straw for me. I was kind of demoralized in a certain sense, and I think I wasn't the only one. Okay, yeah. And and of, and of course, you left to join the mighty Atari. Can you, yep. can you tell us how that came about, Matt? So yeah, you, clearly you were disenfranchised with um, Gottlieb. How did you end up at Atari? Well, I know that I went to a headhunter, and, and, and maybe that's the same headhunter I used to go to Gottlieb in the first place. Mm. And uh, I told him, you know, I want to move to uh, San Francisco Bay Area and get a job making uh, video games, not coin-op. <laughs> okay. Is what I told him. I don't want to be a coin-op game programmer. I want to work in home computers or consoles. So he looked looked me up a few for a few companies that were hiring and then uh, sent me on a couple of interviews. One of them was Atari and they made me an offer. Your 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 decision to leave coin-op was that was that based on the writing you were seeing on the wall or was it just you you wanted to go in a different direction or did you did you see a better future for the for the home home side of things well i don't know why i just felt that coin op was declining and wouldn't come back it would not have any kind of resurgence i didn't see any mechanism for that and that the home home computer and in particular you know things like the commodore 64 which I already had, were doing a very good job in terms of audio and visual experience for the player, mm. and uh, that that you know that was certainly uh, going to make a you know a good a strong market in the future. And uh, so uh, you know that's that was my thinking. It's very yeah. interesting foresight, Matt. I mean, it's, it sort of strikes me that the coin op crash seemed to take the vast majority of people by surprise. Um, 
whereas it it seems you saw the writing on the wall and and made a conscious decision to um, get out. Yeah, I've I, I did that over and over for about thirty years in the game business. Okay. <laughs> sometimes yeah. you were pushed, and sometimes you kind of you know just a kind of a canary in a coal mine. Right. Do you think do you think you've got a knack, Matt, for for spotting the bubbles before they pop? I may have. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I don't know what's going to be a hit. And can I, mean, I interest you in some cryptocurrency? <laughs> um. So I, sometimes you do. I don't know. I, yeah. Some things you know are hit when you're working on them. Like when I was working on some later games that were going to be hits, I knew it. It was obvious. Sure. Yeah, and so you ended up at Atari, who, of course, up to that point, um, have been the sort of darlings of the video game industry, both coin-op and um, consumer. Um, I just wondered what your first impressions are. I mean, did did you did you see some stark differences between uh, the way Atari was uh, set up versus Gottlieb, where you'd come from? I did. Um, at Atari, I had an office to myself. Okay. <laughs> Not at first, but uh, uh, after few months I did. Um, I was also given a lot more. Uh, well, actually, at, at Gottlieb, the way the crawl worked out, you know, we were allowed a lot of living, given our heads to do whatever we wanted. But um, Atari was even more hands off in a lot of ways. And, you know, if I'd wanted to go to Chicago Fest and every Monday, <laughs> I don't think my boss would have cared. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, and, and- I mean, we had Donuts on Friday morning and beer blasts, beer busts on Friday afternoon every week. So beer busts—that is that. This, this must be an American thing, right? Paul, Paul, I think Paul's fallen asleep because he's not asked about hot tubs. This surely is his moment. <laughs> I was distracted by donuts. So, was, so donuts and hot great. tubs. Donuts and beer. Yeah. Okay. But um, well, Atari. When I got there, I worked on uh, the ColecoVision and uh, converting a coin-op game to the ColecoVision. I started working on Vanguard, but then quickly was switched to uh, Moon Patrol. So I did Moon Patrol and the ColecoVision. But um, you know, it it was a uh, it was a huge place, and uh, we were kind of more on our own uh, as independents almost there, and and uh, we were supposed to be paid um, bonuses for finishing games. When we finished a game, we would get an immediate bonus of substantial amount that would be a significant fraction of your annual salary so i thought that was good yeah um, that's not what the coin up business did and certainly not Gottlieb. okay but how how satisfying was that creatively converting someone else's work well again um like being given a script you know being given a coin op um, with completely different hardware and then trying to map that experience onto a different platform was was a good challenge a good kind of puzzle our intellectual puzzle as well as engineering and you know okay. um i enjoyed it and it was i think good training for me although uh, it ended up being the last game i ever programmed <laughs> so right yeah like it trained me not to ever program another game <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe you yeah. could look at it that way sure and and how did that process work? Did did you actually have access to a Moon Patrol machine? Yeah, I had Moon Patrol in my office, uh, and that was that was all I had. So uh, I had the I had Moon Patrol, and I had the uh, operator's manual, you know, and uh, I had a ruler and a, and a piece of paper and a pencil, and I reverse engineered it from that. We wonder if you had an opportunity to sneak over to the to the coin op division and and get to know those guys and see what they were working on, Matt. Or um, did you did you avoid it at all costs? Well, I didn't avoid it, but we were they were they were a different 
they were far away in a different building and yeah. didn't know any of them. But ultimately, when um, just before Atari um, bankrupted themselves out of existence and was sold to Jack Trammell, I they did merge my team with with or no, they brought in a guy Ed, no, what's his name, uh, Steve Calfi as as the boss of the. Yeah, of a kind of like a united division of coin op. He used to be a coin op or something. That's right. And yeah, and then so he was my boss for a while. Here's my boss's boss. <laughs> okay. For a while, and we so we got somewhat of an exposure to coin op through him. And then they moved us to Milpitas. That's right. Yes, they moved us to Milpitas, which I think is where coin op was. Us meaning the ColecoVision group. We were all we were all ex coin op programmers, all of us mm -hmm. in the ColecoVision group, and we did we converted coin ops to the ColecoVision. That's what we did. Interesting. Yeah, we interviewed Steve um, a couple of weeks back. Yeah, I think he or well, Rich Frick was my immediate boss. After after my work on on, on ColecoVision Moon Patrol was complete, and they decided they weren't going to publish it because they weren't going to publish anything more on the on the ColecoVision, they sent me to. Uh, Studying the Amiga chipset, which they were had in a deal with uh, Amiga at the time to license for for use in home computers, I believe. Okay. So I did an analysis of that before Tremels took over. Yeah, and I you you mentioned um, the uh, Tremel takeover, for want of a better phrase. I, uh, yeah. I, it sort of strikes me you joined Atari at a time of pretty substantial turmoil yes as it turned out it was kind of frying pan into a fire but at least it was a fire <laughs> and you know something going on mm. but um yeah it was were you uh, able to just keep your head down or, or uh well you know i i'm trying to remember how i felt about it at the time well i was upset because i wasn't going to get my completion bonus for finishing ColecoVision moon, uh, moon patrol right yeah <laughs> So that kind of burned me. And then, um, yeah, and then it was, um, well, I knew we were losing a million dollars a day because that was in the, that was in the news. I mean, you could read about that in the, in the paper. And then uh, it wasn't long after that, that, that uh, Time Warner sold, sold it off or it's kind of like a, like a bankruptcy sale. You know, they just said, well, you can take this and ex you can have this company in exchange for taking some of our debt. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, you get the assets of Atari and except for the coin op part, which I guess was kept separate still. Mm -hmm. And you have to take a bunch of debt. And the Tremels agreed to do that. Or Jack Tremell did that. And that's how. And then he had a whole bunch of assets that he could sell off like a yard sale of, you know, extra hardware and ET cartridges and whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I mean, we, we here on the podcast, um, we uh, obviously... Uh, focus on the golden age of uh, coin-op gaming. And, I mean, arguably your most productive and successful time came sort of post these these experiences around the early 80s. I, can you sort of just give us a sort of brief straw man what, what you did next after Atari? Yeah, after Atari, I uh, well, I worked on the Atari... ST operating system and wrote wrote the line line primitives polygon and line primitives in, in assembly language for Gem uh, the, the operating system in the Atari ST and then they weren't going to do any more games so I quit and went to Epix E P Y X 
Right. Yes. And became a producer or project manager, as it was termed. And I basically managed design and development of games with both internal and external teams at Epix, um, including um, Winter Games, World Games, California Games, yes. um, which I created, or actually my wife inspired me to create more accurately. And when you say um when you when you say created Matt but you've also said you were project managing so were you were you still hands on in front of a keyboard tapping away or or were you more sort of providing direction to teams of programmers? Uh generally pro- providing direction um sometimes pretty basic direction of like if it's an outside team and they're delivering milestones did you meet your milestone if not why not what do you have to do to meet your milestone okay here's your payment that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, I got involved in things like, well, we want you to make the game better in this way, and here's how to do it. And I wouldn't take no for an answer. I wouldn't take bluff. You know, it's like, well, it's like, well, tell your programmer to do this. <laughs> I know how to do that. I can, I'll, you, let me talk to him. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you sound like my boss. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's very hands on in that respect. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I also created great games for epics uh, uh world games in particular i had a lot of creative input on that um as well as uh california games being the concept creator now, I, I remember these california games am i right in mm-hmm. saying it it was on the atari Lynx? yes or it was I on the links but am, am that I, was later yes okay it that's... was on the 64 and the... Well, okay. you, were you responsible for hacky sack <laughs> yes <laughs> that should be on your business card the man responsible for the video game version of Hacky Sack. Yeah, yeah. California Games had surfing, uh, skateboarding, skateboarding halfpipe. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Welcome to the retro gaming podcast that Tony vaguely remembers. <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're, these were real games, real games, Tony. Yeah, we're in danger of going horribly off piste here, but uh, that yeah, was Winter but, Games. That yes. Was <laughs> oh, winter, winter Games had hot dog skiing. That was kind of the inspiration for the whole uh, away from the Olympic. Uh, How do you strap a sausage to each foot? I've always wanted to know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it was called hot dog. Anyway, go on, Tony. So that's okay. So, so Matt. So presumably, it's it, it's been a sort of life of gaming to the to the present day. What what? How would we come across you today? In the well, today, I mean, I, it's just in my and probably the best way to, to track me is my, is the hits I worked on. So California Games is one, Diablo, Diablo 2 is another and uh, uh, another one that's not as well known but the most recent one that was considered a hit in some formats was Kitchen Scramble. Okay. Uh, so it's a Facebook game of the year from 8 years ago. <laughs> tell 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 us a little about a little about Kitchen Scramble, Matt. Go on. Uh, well, Kitchen Scramble is a game I co-created um, while at Disney, uh, Disney Interactive. And it, uh, it's a game where you assemble food orders that are presented by customers at your food truck. So you have a food truck and people come up and order different things from the ingredients you have in your refrigerator and you have a number of appliances to uh, put these ingredients together in a, in a certain order. And you have to deliver so many of them. They're kind of randomly uh, driven processes. Um, different customers show up and order different things with different likelihoods. And uh, it's a kind of, it's basically the most stripped down, minimal, real-time strategy game you could imagine against a computer opponent. It's interesting, isn't it? How, how you know, compared to the golden age of arcade gaming that we um, remember so fondly, I, I, I find it interesting how gaming has become 
so mainstream now that to develop a game for Facebook, you have to take into consideration, you know, the potential audience, which is fundamentally the entire world. Yeah, I mean, it is true that, you know, people, you know, they're, they differ across market segments, however you want to segment a market, but people are still people and they like to be challenged and they like to be successful. Yeah. And and my, I, I personally, I am not a fan at all of you know Facebook gaming or even mobile gaming. But when you when you come across something like Candy Crush, you think, mm. yeah, you know, these guys have nailed this. I get it. Yeah. Well, these are still these are still essentially those interstitial games, as um, as Owen Rubin um, referred to them as, aren't they? I mean, they're just in a, mm. just in a different delivery um, format. I believe so. Yeah, and mobile games. Yeah, I mean, that's how Candy Crush became really big. Was mobile. It was. It was on Facebook as well, and Kitchen Scramble is on mobile now. I don't, I don't even know if it's still operating on Facebook. Probably not, but it still makes money on mobile. Matt, this has been absolutely, genuinely fascinating, I, and and funny too. And I, none of us are joking about the comedy roms of Krull. I really think that if you don't do it yourself. And if you don't mind, I think one of us is going to have a word in the shell of somebody who might well well be interested, you know, above and beyond your anecdotes about them. And you mentioned you had a Robotron in yeah. your garage arcade, or you just have one or two um, machines in there. What else have you got? Well, here's what I have. I have a working uh, uh, Robotron, a working Defender, of yeah. course, also by Eugene Jarvis uh-huh. uh, and others uh-huh, who worked, on, worked together with him at Williams. And um, a Congo Bongo, which is kind of at random. Yes, yes. And uh, yes, there's there's a niche game right there. Yeah, that came out I think right when Crawl came out, more or less. And um, and what else? Oh, I have a computer space that does not fully work. Uh, a red a red computer space. Hey, okay, lovely. Ooh. Yeah, I could have had I could have had four of them, but I didn't buy them. And this well, <laughs> dude. And you could have given one each. Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes. Matt, what were you thinking I, of? I don't know. Here's yeah, there's the kind of regrets I have about CoinOp is that I didn't buy the four when I could have bought the four. Well, thirty years ago, whenever it was. Wow. And now now yeah, well, you'd you'd sell them on for a pretty penny now. I'd probably only um, keep that's... the one, right. Yeah. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure hearing all your tales. Uh, I'd like to point out that in preparation for this interview, I played Krull, the video game, right to the end. Matt, I'm challenging you. You need to watch Krull the movie right to the end. Okay, okay, I will. I will someday. Yeah, we we need to we need to buy you a copy on Amazon and just send it to you. It's done. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. This this I found this just fantastically interesting. The podcast is all about shining a light on those sort of you know less well known names of 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 which, with the greatest of respect, you probably are one. So we are chuffed to have had the opportunity for you to share your story, and I'm I'm sure our listeners will um, really enjoy this episode. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks very much to all of you for inviting me. Definitely fun. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
I might get back to it someday. I I would probably go back to the ColecoVision, although maybe maybe uh, this this idea of doing a comedy version of Krull, maybe maybe I could actually write some code. You heard it here first. Yeah, I got to get the Krull gra- the graphics out, make sure that the EPROMs have stayed away from that old ultraviolet. Mm-hmm.